all right so let's just wait for a couple more minutes for people to join and then we'll get started hey hi tanmay how are you doing hey man uh, panda and krishna are going to be here very soon so krishna is here all right so let's invite people in okay mhm it's time hello hello kya baat hai badi achhi lighting mein baithe ho aaj aap ke paas yo hi krishna ab कृष्णा बता हम दोनों में से किसका मुंह ज्यादा शाइन पांडा ऑब्वियसली पांडा का ही शाइन करेगा भाई क्योंकि पांडा का एल्बिडो एल्बिडो फैक्टर बताओ पांडा कम है ज्यादा है ये बता तेरे मुंह का काफी हाई है काफी ज्यादा चलो ठीक है सर का उससे भी ज्यादा हां पांडा थोड़ा ऊपर लेवल पे आ भाई ऐसे ऊपर से लाइट जा रही है समझ नहीं रहा तू सेटअप किया अभी तो धीरे धीरे फिक्स होगा बेटर थोड़ा नीचे है पांडा तो भाई छोटे आदमी नीचे है कोई नहीं तो बोल कोई बात नहीं ओके लेट्स गेट स्टार्टेड वी रिकॉर्डिंग दिस एट सिक्स एटीन पी एम ऑन थर्टीन अप्रैल एंड इट्स चांद से भी ज्यादा रिफ्लेक्ट कर रहा है पांडा तेरा चेहरा लाइट को चांद से भी ज्यादा कर रहा है और पता नहीं कौन सी लाइट रिफ्लेक्ट कर रहा है इसका चेहरा बट लेट्स गेट ऑन टू द पॉइंट एंड तन्मय तन्मय वांटेड टू से हाय 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 हेलो कॉलेज डेज यार सच में यार बहुत मिस करते हैं और वो छोटी छोटी ऐसे बिल्लियां भी यू नो छोटी छोटी बिल्लियों को तो तू मिस करेगा अरे यार सिटीजनशिप इशू विच इज कमिंग अप इन इंडिया सो इसके ऊपर एक आर्टिकल आया था बाई हैपी मोहन जेकब ऑन इन द सैटरडे हिंदू इट वॉज एन एडिटोरियल and uh, he he was saying that uh, india has a citizenship problem ki india ke andar jo currently uh, as we know myanmar ke andar uh, the janta government is trying to take power by force and the people uh, there are some refugees which are showing up in india's northeast border aur unko uh, indian government is turning away because indian government does not want to uh, you know push the uh, generals in nepi tau away by accepting refugees because if india starts accepting refugees they're pushing myanmar away and creating space for china to get close to the janta government and then hurt india and myanmar's relations so he's saying that uh, that is where uh, an ethical issue is coming up because these people they're denied uh, social and political rights in myanmar and that is why they're coming to india and then in india again in the borders they're being turned away 
so uh, it it is definitely an ethical issue which the uh, state is trying to manage because it also needs to manage its relationships with Myanmar as well also another interesting point that the author brings up is that india ke andar legally there is no difference between a refugee and between someone who has come in illegally so kya kehte hai jo india ka constitutional structure hai ya jo laws hai they just uh, view every foreigner with the same lens they don't make a difference between anyone who is a refugee who has suffered some hardship in 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 his country and is currently stateless or someone who has come to india with mal intentions so there is definitely an uh, a, a tweak in the citizenship laws required there that we can uh, make uh, ourselves more accepting to refugees india is also not a signee to the 1951 uh, refugee convention which uh, for which uh, protocol was signed in 1967 and india has not accepted either of them regardless uh, india's record at refugees uh, like helping refugees is is uh, quite great because in 1959 we helped dalai lama and all of his followers uh, find a place to stay in india so uh, despite during 1951 the refugee convention it is a western institution and uh, even western institutions don't have such a great record while handling refugee crisis because if you see uh, most of the western countries are following a no entry regime where they're not allowing people displaced from the middle east for example to come into their country so uh, so uh, the west does not have a clean record in uh, in in handling the refugees and in india also the author is saying that there is a certain problem now uh, all of us should remember ki 2014 ke andar government was trying to bring in the caa Uh, which is a citizenship amendment act uh, where we were trying to give uh, citizenship to all the non muslim uh, basically uh, people who had come to india uh, either from bangladesh or from uh, pakistan so uh, that is also an evolving issue and the government decided to shelf it because uh, it, it, it had political concerns but the wider issue which the author is saying ki india ki jo ye refugee policy hai iske andar there is a lot of ad hocism मतलब कि जब जरूरत पड़ेगी तब पॉलिटिकल मतलब को देखते हुए दे विल टेक अ डिसीजन देयर इज नो रूल ऑफ लॉ या फिर मतलब कुछ रिटर्न लॉ नहीं है जिसके हिसाब से इंडिया मैनेजेस इट्स रेफ्यूजीज या फिर इंडिया गिव्स सिटीजनशिप्स टू पीपल शोइंग अप ऑन इट्स बॉर्डर्स सो दिस दिस हैज बीन लेफ्ट वेग एंड एंड इट इज बाय डिजाइन आल्सो क्योंकि दिस अलाउज अवर पॉलिटिकल लीडरशिप इनफ रूम टू मैन्यूवर so either they can uh, you know do the politically expedient thing they can either accept or reject because there is no certain policy so uh, th- this is the wide uh, you know the wide context in which this citizenship debate has come up and uh, elections are going on in bengal and assam as well so citizenship issues are a key part of the national narrative and uh, uh, krishna i would like to hear your thoughts on this like uh, uh, what do you think are the uh, right next steps uh, for uh, india okay so first of all everything that i like new or that i wanted to say you have already covered everything with you know no difference in uh, uh, refugee and illegal immigrant and not being assigned to the uh, convention but then yeah. okay so i'll have to put my personal opinion in this uh, mm-hmm. well obviously the refugee problem is uh, both of an ethical dilemma as well as a foreign policy dilemma for any country in the world and mm-hmm. it's a really challenging issue mm-hmm. but like it's not easy for even our government to deal with this issue because every time a new problem comes up like uh, there was rohingya crisis where they were you know uh, being harassed by the uh, myanmar army back then and then they came to india and india refused them and bangladesh gave them refuge on a lone island uh, somewhere in the bay of bengal 
and then now there is this uh, the janta crackdown which has re- resulted into uh, again a refugee crisis for india mm-hmm. so like this is also not right if we ask the government to simply give them city- indian citizenship and uh, uh, all the country benefits because like obviously there are limited resources for indians as well and you cannot just you know uh, without any proper due process give out citizenship to everyone every refugee out there because there may, might be unscrupulous elements being trying to you know smuggle in india also so obviously there there are two aspects of this whole situation actually first is the law and order scenario like do the refugees well obviously not we refugees in no 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 i uh, hello yeah 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 can you just Am go back 5 seconds yeah 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 so i was saying that there are two aspects to this whole refugee crisis first is the are refugees a law and order threat to india well obviously the genuine refugees can't be t- uh, termed as law and order threat and only the unscrupulous terrorists and uh, insurgents who want to you know uh, get into illegally in india uh, can be described as a uh, law and order threat so government needs to put stringent uh, check on that and secondly is the ethical aspect that there are people who are in need of very emergent very emergent facilities where like food water and a shelter this is all that a refugee needs from a uh, any country so can is india that poor that it cannot provide even these basic facilities to a refugee like they are not coming here asking for jobs and uh, you know indian wives on their only demand is food shelter and water so obviously the middle ground here is that we can provide basic facilities to them along with a foreign correspondence with the host country on how we can move forward with this situation but obviously that also has some backtrack because as we know the rohingyas are still living in bangladesh's refugee camps there has been no initiative from myanmar side to take them back and obviously bangladesh with its limited resources can only do so much that it can provide refuge to the rohingyas there needs to be actually an a whole international collaboration along with the global ngos and governments we cannot totally rely on our governments to provide all the services to the refugees but obviously india can do little bit more by providing basic facilities and also collaborating with the foreign uh, with the host country along with the participation of global esteemed ngos that's my take right mm-hmm. so basically you know krishna uh, i have first i'll take on this issue that is this crisis of refugees uh, as you rightly mentioned we asked that uh, india is not a signatory to 1951 unhcr the convention on refugees human right convention on refugees uh, but it is legally binding uh, even for a country if it is not a participant uh, if there is a threat of life to them so that is uh india cannot deny entry of you know uh, it cannot basically it, it's not about denying entry it's about you know it cannot send back those refugees if you know there is a threat of life to life so that is one thing uh, apart from uh, matlab it is a binding uh, instrument even if you haven't signed it as india has not signed it so that is one right. thing second thing is uh, rajkrishna is mentioning that you know bangladesh have relocated them and i think so that is char bahar facility that island name if i remember it correctly but uh, the possibility of that island uh, you know sinking is itself very high by 2050 having said that the thing is uh, you know uh, they are seeking only food shelter and uh, water that is what uh, 
Raj Krishna has mentioned, but uh, they are also a threat to national security in the terms that they can be radicalized very easily. You know, and once if you uh, being a human, you always need basic human rights. You know, and citizenship is basically that right that entails all other rights to you. That is the very definition of citizenship. You know, so once you are into India. and uh, it is obviously okay fine you are the first generation of refugee but your second generation of refugee will always strive for rights uh, that are more than just food shelter and water so that is where the problem arises now i would just like to point out the case of uh, a small african nation called gambia that had uh, you know went to united nation uh, against the myanmar and it had filed a case suit against the myanmar hunta hunta government this so uh, what basically happened is uh, what basically is the need and uh, what should have been uh, technically done by all the nations including the big nations which they did not do uh, including india just to not spoil the relation with myanmar is a proper you know confrontation with myanmar and proper deliberation basically with myanmar uh, include and this this is only possible when all the nations together do it you know instead of a nation going against myanmar because that will only deteriorate their international relations you know so this gambia country went against myanmar and uh, you know it has filed a case uh regarding the human rights violation uh, against myanmar so i think so this is the need of our that needs to be done by all the countries together because that is the ultimate solution like they are the citizen of your nation you know you cannot uh, they are facing threat of life there so you have to ensure them better uh, facilities they cannot uh, go and reside in any other nation because ultimately they will become a threat to that nation or again the nation itself has limited resources you know uh, mentioning about jobs uh, tripura has an unemployment rate of 40% the northeast you know where it is the influx of uh, that is high from the myanmar adjoining borders uh, even in assam mm-hmm. so that is my point that uh, ultimately there needs to be a discussion that is okay and uh, that is the, in fact the only way uh, forward but in the uh, short term as you rightly mentioned this concept of citizenship has uh, uh you know uh, i would say uh, it it depends on the whims and mood of government whenever it wants to uh, give gov- uh, citizenship like ca has been uh, has been brought up in 2019 so uh, this is one thing that needs the, these two are two separate things that needs to be tackled differently uh, the issue of myanmar and the refugees like presently india is only facing uh, refugee crisis from myanmar you know 10 years back it was from sri lanka the tamilians that were coming back to india so india needs to have a constant so india cannot Uh, accommodate Tamilians and then say no to uh, Myanmaris. So that is one thing. So India needs to have a constant policy. That is first thing. Second thing is it needs to take uh, into confrontation the country uh, from which these refugee crises are happening. Basically, uh, such as the uh, uh, Dalai Lama was accommodated, uh, Tamilians were accommodated, but why aren't the uh, Myanmaris uh, accommodated? You know, uh, maybe due to their religion. Basically, that is what CA has uh, mentioned. so i think so these are uh, the two friends that i would like to mention that you need to have a constant confrontation with all the nations you know and uh, provide better jobs for your nation how uh, owing to human rights provide them basic food life and shelter but there should be a time frame in which they are relocated back to their uh, parent nation you know and have a constant uh, policy from the day one and con- uh, uh, constant stand you know uh, it's not that when elections are coming near you just change your stance of uh, not reverting them back to your, uh, to their nation or something like that as it has been done recently in the bangladesh and west bengal elections so that is my take on it mm-hmm. yeah uh, krishna yeah I so i would like to just appreciate uh, i would like to just appreciate panda's point that uh, all the countries on on the globe like need to you know form a alliance against this refugee crisis and push who, whichever country is 
you know uh, imposing crimes and brutality on them uh, like if everyone gets on one side then obviously the other country will have to uh, succumb to their demands and wishes like they cannot keep refusing the refugees if everyone is you know forcing them to accept them because international diplomacy has a lot of power in it and it can obviously force a country to take the people who are moving out of their country yeah so uh, thank you so much krishna mm-hmm. uh, so, sorry panda so thank you krishna for bringing it up so i i, I that that is brings us to the next facet of this debate that is ki uh, agar kisi bhi country ke bas mein nahi hai कि वो रेफ्यूजीज को अपनी सिटीजनशिप प्रोवाइड कर सके विच इज लॉजिकल बिकॉज कंट्री इफ दिस इज प्रोवाइडिंग सिटीजनशिप देन इट हैज टू गिव सेवरल राइट्स मतलब अगर इंडिया को कोई सिटीजन है तो फंडामेंटल राइट्स होंगे उसके कुछ राइट टू एम्प्लॉयमेंट एंड इट इज टेकिंग अप स्पेस विच ओरिजिनली बिलोंग्स टू द नेटिव ऑफ दैट पर्टिकुलर कंट्री सो नाउ डज इट ब्रिंग अप अ कॉन्सेप्ट ऑफ इंटरनेशनल सिटीजनशिप या फिर मतलब कि जो लोग स्टेटलेस हैं या फिर जिनके पास कोई स्टेट नहीं है उनको राइट देने वाला उन लोगों को राइट कौन देगा कोई स्टेट उनको एक्सेप्ट करने को तैयार नहीं है जबकि यूएन इन 1951 आई थिंक इट सेल्फ डिक्लेरेशन ऑन ह्यूमन राइट्स सो एवरी ह्यूमन जस्ट बाय द फैक्ट दैट दे आर ह्यूमन दे हैव सर्टेन राइट्स व्हाट हैपेंस टू द पीपल हु डू नॉट बिलोंग टू एनी स्टेट सो वन ऑफ द वेज टू टैकल दैट इज टू हैव एन इंटरनेशनल a uh, citizenship where you don't belong to any particular state and uh, whichever state that you belong matlab uh, that you are in right now so let's say people from myanmar come to india and they want refuge in india then india will provide that refuge but there needs to be a way where everyone in the world is paying for those refugees uh, where the load is just not on the country in which those refugees happen to come because such a problem can come come up anywhere for example when the isis crisis was going on in uh, syria it displaced almost 10 million people and all of those people uh, ended up in turkey in greece and in other uh, european nations uh, like germany so we can't expect these border nations to take care of the refugee problem that is coming up so uh, we need a central international solution where these people have some rights and uh, th- their care is taken care i mean um, their uh, you know basics are taken care of and, uh, it is still being uh, paid for by an international institution where everyone is contributing to that fund so uh, so uh, that would be uh, like the next logical step uh, from citizenship when we have citizenship for certain countries but is there a citizenship for the globe as well right you know uh, pointing this uh, taking your point forward and uh, in fact including the point that krishna had already made you know uh, why don't we have a collaboration of all the nations you know uh, that contribute or form a international body that looks after these citizens that was the point that krishna had you know just Uh, brought up and uh, the point that you are mentioning about international citizenship the thing is uh, you know international organization and funding is required you know and it has to be done by every member nation you know uh, a separate fund can be made definitely it can be made and it can be paid to the country that is maintaining it uh, the ultimate question lies about the responsibilities of the actions that these uh, migrants might take you know uh, illegal migrants or uh, refugees uh, might take after radicalization so that is one uh, thing that might factor in but you know the nations that are not affected by this problem there are hardly few you know uh, but again like even america is affected from mexico but the nations that are not affected by these uh, nations would not like to chip in their you know uh, because just because they are not facing that issue so this is one thing that can be seen but we need a collaborated effort right and second thing is uh, i just need to point out since we are talking about citizenship and refugees uh, the climate refugees basically 
the climate migration and the climate refugees are nowhere mentioned in in any of the acts you know even they have not even been defined by the united nations you know so that also mm-hmm. needs to be taken into account because as the climate is changing the number of such refugees uh, basically bangladesh that will be submerged after say 50 or 100 years that needs to be taken into care and i think so it is very high time that a international citizenship concept should be taken up and responsibility uh, responsibility should be delegated among all the members according to their capabilities and you know contributions that they can make so this is a i would say a very uh, noble step that can be taken forward right mhm yeah so uh, i think with that we can close this topic uh, because we have had quite a long debate on it and uh, why don't you take on the next one right so basically next topic is the one that i wanted to uh, take on the uh, last time so it was investment opportunities in healthcare sector you know but uh, after seeing the uh, recent covid situation and the vaccine diplomacy uh, i would like to go back but still Uh, we would continue taking this investment opportunities in healthcare sector so basically india's healthcare sector it is growing at an annual rate of 22% uh, since 2016 mm-hmm. and it is expected to reach 370 billion dollars by 2022 right and healthcare sector mm-hmm. itself became the fifth largest employer uh, in 2015 itself employing 4.7 million jobs you know and uh, this can be uh, risen by another 2.57 billion next 3 uh, or 4 years right so mm-hmm. basically i just want to know your views on what are the rising opportunities in india's health sector and how has this covid situation altered these opportunities or you know yeah, yeah. can you hear me yeah yeah hello hello yeah guys so your views on yeah. india's so, uh, opportunities in healthcare sectors regarding covid and uh, the recent yeah 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 so uh, mm-hmm. so in, in india as we know uh, requires a lot of investment into the healthcare sector because uh, our current spending in healthcare uh, is is far far below the level uh, at, at at which is recommended by the who at least and in general also uh, there is a lack of infrastructure in uh, in healthcare as in every other sector in india so uh, healthcare in general requires a lot of investment so uh, this starts with building more hospitals having more equipment manufactured in india uh, Uh, you know uh, building pharmaceuticals in india designing and manufacturing them then having uh, supply chains for all the components uh, that go into the pharmaceuticals as well as uh, for manufacturing devices and machines related to uh, medicine so uh, actually medical devices is going to be a huge sector because india is is, is a country which is uh, which has a very high uh, disease load when it comes to things like diabetes or uh, blood pressure so equipment which can help people track their uh, diabetes or blood sugar or which can help people track their blood pressure uh these are going to be really useful uh, technologies uh, which can be deployed in india and uh, since the disease load is really high uh, this ensures demand for uh, for manufacturers and entrepreneurs in this space uh, besides that uh, i think india is hugely dependent uh, on imports for uh, not only for uh, the active pharmaceutical ingredients but also uh, for medical devices and machines which are used in hospitals because india has very little r&d in this space and uh has equally little uh, manufacturing in this space as well so we need to invest more into innovation in healthcare and that will come from small enterprises so uh in india needs to move away from its emphasis on uh you know 
on uh, medical parks and uh, large uh, medicine or uh, hospital projects because those are not going to be the ones which are going to help the common man uh, the common man is going to be helped by the clinic which is open in his village or uh, by the you know primary healthcare center Uh, which is open in a remote area so uh, india needs to invest more there and increase the reach of uh, of modern medicine because uh, india's uh, expected age has uh, still a lot of scope to go up and uh, one of the reasons that uh, not a lot of people in the first wave of covid died is because india does not have that many old people uh, because people die by the time they become old so uh, western countries have a lot higher uh, fatality rate because of covid because older people are uh, you know still alive there and life expectancy is higher uh, than uh, you know the people who are uh, statistically most likely to die from covid so that is why uh, in india does not have a very large population of uh, octogenarians or uh, you know 70 year old people and that is why we have low fatality for covid so so that is a boon but uh, it it also points to the wider picture that the healthcare services have not reached uh to every person in india and they are very much limited to the urban uh, urban areas in india uh, although india is quite popular for its cheap uh, you know cheap healthcare services that it provides and there is also a lot of medical tourism that india receives from african nations because uh, india is relatively uh, you can do treatments in india for a lot cheaper than you can do in western countries because western countries have a lot higher cost associated with every uh, every kind of treatment but in india you can do it for a lot cheaper so india has the cost advantage going for it and uh, we must invest in these uh, primary healthcare uh, units and uh, you know uh, small uh, clinics more and more so that even more people can get access to healthcare and uh, you know a modern medicine can help improve uh, the health outcomes in india that would be my take yeah okay okay very very nice but just i'll just note it down uh, primary healthcare sector right okay so basically uh, you have already mentioned you know uh, now just putting your views in terms of numbers so the average life expectancy in india at birth is 68 years you know mm-hmm. so that is again less than 70 years so uh, one thing second thing is uh, apart from that uh, the public investment in healthcare is just uh, hovering around 8.95% and if you include the states it's 1.6% you know national health policy 2017 had a goal of taking it uh, higher up to 2.5% right so that was by 2025 i guess mm-hmm. and uh, the who recommendation is 5% yeah who recommendation is 5% that is another and i think so only states uh, that have reached it are i think so kerala and himachal or only kerala that is at 7% that is state spending you know but Uh, again and that is why kerala has been you know very efficient in tackling uh, the covid menace and also the uh, nipa virus spread that had uh, occurred you know uh, it had contained it very well right having yeah. said that uh, the second thing is uh, that you mentioned uh, that you mentioned is about the primary healthcare sector right you mm-hmm. know in india uh, more than a lakh of people uh, to put it into exact number it is 1 lakh 2000 and some uh, cases they die by just due to the lack of uh, ors pouches you know just due to diarrhea they are not provided uh, four pouches that cost hardly 15 rupees of ors then that is basically uh, that shows that our primary healthcare sector is uh, lacking you know in such facilities or they are not able to instill confidence in people or uh, maybe there is some corruption or something like that that people are not able to approach it uh, i i also seem to read a case of 
PDS distribution system, the Aadhaar-based PDS system, where they were not authenticated and the women uh, died due to hunger. So that is another thing. Having said that, now let's just uh, see about the opportunities that COVID, uh, COVID uh, as an epidemic has brought to India. Right. So I think so. Uh, there has been an increase in digitization of services and uh, more apps uh, such as Practo and Telemedicine have come on rise. So that is the one thing that has just started and uh, uh, it is the next step forward in the health sector. Right. Second thing is, uh, you know, uh, apart from uh, other challenges that it has brought, it has also brought opportunities such as uh, we can see that the uh, growth rate of the sanitizers and multivitamins uh, that were produced in India have risen very high. So it, you know, it points out that India has a capacity to build, you know, India just needs favorable conditions. COVID was not favorable, but you get the point that I'm trying to say that if the environment is created, uh, India can do very good in that. Now, uh, the point that you have already mentioned is regarding the APIs, the active pharmaceutical ingredients and pointing that is the uh, impact that the recent COVID vaccine uh, has. US has basically, uh, basically uh, banned the export of the ingredients that are needed to manufacture COVID vaccine, you know, and this has hampered the production capacity of Indians. Uh, Indian pharmacy, uh, pharmaceutical companies, the Serum Institute of India, basically, uh, the Poonawala, he has already mentioned that India is going to face a crunch of vaccines owing to this restrictions that have been imposed by uh, the US. So India needs to start uh, and producing its own uh, APIs because it is largely dependent on other nations for API. It is the pharma uh, hub for the world, but you know, itself the raw materials are procured from China, like 70% are procured from China, remaining from US and the Middle East nations. That is another thing. Third thing that I would like to point out is that PPV model in healthcare sector is something that can be explored. You know, and I would like to specifically take your views uh, right now on the PPV model in respect to healthcare sector. What do you uh, have to say about the uh, PPV model with respect to healthcare sector and how can it impact? Yeah, so uh, for first thing about the PPV model in general is that the private parties are uh, a little, uh, you know, apprehensive of investing with the government. So there are two reasons for that. One is that the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has brought an economic slowdown. So investors are in general wary of investing. And uh, when you go for a public-private partnership, uh, the, the results have not been great so far. Uh, when we consider the, uh, you know, the infra projects that are hanging up and creating uh, non-performing assets for the, the Indian banking sector. So uh, it, it is the private uh, public partnership model uh, at, at the base of those problems. And uh, the, these problems tend not to move forward because uh, generally uh, there is a view, uh, you know, there is a view that uh, infrastructure projects, they expand uh, in, in cost as, as they move along uh, uh, their execution. So uh, what that implies is that uh, uh, people, uh, you know, PPP projects have not had a good start in India. And I would be doubtful if, if there are many takers for the healthcare, uh, you know, venture into PPP. Uh, another fact is that it does not cost that much to build a hospital as much as it costs, you know, to build Delhi Mumbai highway. So uh, we, we'll find a lot of a lot more private enterprises into hospitals. So uh, we have some leading private hospitals in, in, in our metros, for example, Delhi and Mumbai, uh, which are fully equipped, uh, you know, modern uh, hospitals and which are fully privately owned. So I don't really see scope for partnership between the government and the private industry to build something like a hospital because the government is really trying to target uh, the the people who, who are vulnerable and who do not have uh, a lot of money. So so, so they, they want to build hospitals for welfareist reasons, whereas the private sector wants to build hospitals for profit sake. 
so uh, that is why uh, there is no match of uh, you know uh, the, the incentives are not aligned uh, because the government uh, wants to uh, do welfare and the private sector wants to earn profits that is why uh, i i see a little divergence there and we will be better off uh, trying to uh, you know promote other ways of increasing investment rather than pvp right uh, my take slightly varies from your take uh, i would just like to give an example you know the success of ayushman bharat lies on the ppp model where where the treatment is done in a private hospital or the ones that are impaneled by the government uh, basically the yes. private hospitals that are empowered impaneled and uh, the seekers of these uh, medical needs they directly go to private sector and get healthcare facilities the only disadvantage that lies here is the cost factor that is usually high or they you know do unnecessary tests or give unnecessary medicines just to uh, make more profits from these people because uh, ultimately it is the government that is paying for these people uh, the beneficiaries of the ayushman bharat you know so this is one thing that i differ on and also i have a very good case study that might change your view so it is about a case of uh, building up of a covid facility special super specialty hospital including a covid facility in bhubaneswar odisha so basically uh, that hospital in uh, bhubaneswar it was built within 10 days you know uh, this is a very uh, good case study the 26 on 26th of uh, march there was this uh, agreement that was signed between the odisha government and a private partnership uh, and uh, uh, the name i think so was Uh, i don't exactly know the uh, private uh, contributor and uh, by 4th of april you know uh, the hospital was operationalized for the covid patients with uh, a task the only background that uh, the disadvantage that i see uh, uh, apart from the ones you have mentioned is that there needs to be a change uh, in the way that the funding of ppp models is done you know instead of uh, maybe instead of going for viability gap funding uh, there might be a sort of partnership that can be seen you know and the clearances needs to be uh, done by the government so that the issue of npas are not uh, you know lag or there are no uh, the clearances should be done by the government and then they should be handed over to the private sector uh, for the partnership uh, because if there is a uh, delay in the building of hospital due to any such reasons then naturally it uh, decreases the interest of the private sector to build so this is one thing apart from that the most important point that you have already mentioned again but again reiterating it that more need more focus needs to be done basically on the bharat aspect of india that lies in the tier 3 to tier 6 cities or villages you know that is where the actual amount the rural population lies uh, the 70% of the indian population lies and uh, this is uh, where the primary healthcare sector should be impaneled so this is my uh, take on this yeah and uh, i uh, hopefully krishna uh, your connection will be stable this time and uh, we've already so. <laughs> we've already discussed our uh, two topics and uh, subhu has joined hi subhu so um, next we would like to uh, take on something uh, from your side krishna so do you have something for us yeah so uh, there was a recent article about the personal data protection bill and how it is going to change things how it is going to be different from the internet technology act and how it is going to provide safeguards at present time so i would like to take up on that and we'll try to like obviously it's going to be a lot factual if i just state the bills provisions so what i'd like to do is i'll give you a brief about both the information technology act and the pdp act and then you can give your views about how actually you think the personal data should be regulated in a country like india okay yeah 
so all right so first of all at present all the online data and digital storage everything is governed by the information technology act of 2000 but it has some shortcomings and because of those the government is coming up with a personal data protection bill which is in lok sabha in the standing committee right now it is being you know uh, deliberated over and so what are the shortcomings in the information technology act so first of all it's uh, that that it act is only applicable on corporates and companies and the government agencies are exempt from it okay then the information technology act does not explicitly provides for rights of the data principles or the data originators which are we as consumers and uh, apart from these there is also that the it act it provides more for data security more than data safeguard that is it provides you that you cannot do this 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 with this data you cannot use it for this purposes but it divide how that data is to be used once the company has taken consent from you they can do anything they want with that data so that is something which is corrected in the pdp act also mm-hmm. there are many technologies that have evolved from 2000 to 2020 and 2021 which need some changes and amendments that is also being taken care of by pdp act and so how the personal data protection bill is different so first of all it applies to both companies as well as governments and secondly it gives specific rights to the data principles that you can anytime withdraw your consent on how that data is going to be used or if that data is going to be used and also it provides the companies an obligation to give you the information of how they are using your data all right and next uh, it sets up a data protection authority which is basically a data regulator in india it is a new initiative it is it will be like first time in india so data protection authority which will regulate all the data related to consumers to which people can complain and uh, you know file grievances so these are basically the uh, features which we need to be aware about and so something that the few things that are coming in my mind about the whole data regime in india is that as of now consumers are digitally illiterate all right like they don't know anything about what they are giving and how it is being used and what is the uh, like in the what is the end mechanism of their data and secondly that companies are exploiting it a lot to their benefit like as of now the internet users are gaining nothing from their data and companies are making millions and billions out of it and secondly mm-hmm. we cannot obviously uh, ban all type of data processing because there are a lot of a lot of innovation on stake like the data that is used by the companies is used to build amazing products like for an example we all use google chrome but we don't use tor although we all know that tor is much safer and secure than google chrome because in google chrome like if you have visited a link you can revisit it you don't need to type the whole link or you don't need to do the whole search again if you just start typing it will obviously automatically fill the rest of it whereas in tor if you're like your every session is anonymous and every time you log in it's a whole new world so obviously data processing has its benefits so the three things that are key to pdp bill is it provides you with rights it uh, uh, encompasses government as well as the companies and it uh, 
provides a new regulator to india for data specifically so what's your mm-hmm. what's your take on data regime in india yeah so i i think this is panda's favorite topic so i i, I don't want to uh, step on panda's toes so why don't you go first right yep. so basically this uh, pdpr bill uh, it has been lying dormant in parliament since 2018 you know it was first mooted in 2018 and there have been uh, talks here and there about this bill uh, taking up uh, recently especially after that uh, twitter uh, spat with the government and the uh, monopoly that facebook had created there was a very high need that uh, there needs to be authority uh, that needs this regulation and uh, some suggestions were made uh, for amending the pdpr bill although it already had uh, a uh, uh, you know a provision for establishing a data protection authority as rajkrishna has already mentioned right apart from that uh, government had also ministry of uh, electronics technology minister you know he had already uh, launched basically some guidelines along with ib uh, in feb of this year uh, regarding the regulations you know the end use uh, stuff like that after that twitter spat Uh, had happened but what i personally feel is you know uh, after the aadhar uh, bill that was enacted there has been a lot of doubt uh, in the minds of people you know they are not clear exactly about how their data is being used how it is being processed and forget about the benefit parts that the companies are making you know companies are using their data to uh, make billions and uh, more and you know they are not giving anything back to the customers so that is one aspect second thing is the privacy part you know as data will only expand and uh, everything uh, that that you search online uh, for example if i'm looking for a, a earphone on google you know these ads will be shown to me everywhere so they they have a tendency to alter the mood of the people that is what uh, we had seen in the elections of us and that can possibly be done uh, you know so a regulation of this type of uh, content uh, was actually needed the it act did not provide for that you know it act was more of a restricting act than regulating act so pdpr uh, bill basically uh, is what uh, india seeks to uh, make on the lines of the gdpr bill that was made by the eu you know and it also uh, seeks to uh, i would like to say streamline few uh, aspects such as uh, your data will only be stored once and every time a government agency not only a private agency even the government agency if it uses your data it will need consent you know presently what happens is every time you go to a center uh, you know they ask for your aadhar card or something like that so all the data will be stored with the digital uh, government and all the agencies the government agencies not the private agencies all the government agencies can use them freely but only after the consent has been given by the user you know every time they need a consent so basically that is what is uh, giving the power uh, in the hands of customer these are some provisions of the data protection bill and uh, this is again uh, repointing that Uh, the internet itself uh, right to internet is you know a highly debated topic it has been mentioned as fundamental rights by high courts of kerala you know not by supreme court so that is what i would not say uh, it as a fundamental right but you know uh, and uh, similarly government has also launched a regulation and ordinance in december of last month that no ban on uh, internet can last for more than 14 days you know so internet is something that is becoming common to every household with the rising penetration of internet there needs to be regulation on uh, what the rights of individuals are and this bill uh, exactly seeks to do that along with the uh, along with solving some issues that government you know falls usually with these multinational corporations so this is uh, that thing this is the step in that direction mm-hmm. 
yeah so uh, data protection uh, as you guys have already mentioned that uh, this bill uh, has been talked about since 2019 so its pros and cons are quite well researched so iski bas do deficiencies which uh, uh, you guys uh, did not point out ek to hai ki ek justice bn krishna committee thi 2018 mein uh, which had recommended creating the uh, data protection authority as a composition for uh, you know with multi stakeholders uske in the private sector se bhi log aaye aur government se bhi log aaye aur koi judiciary se bhi log aaye and uh, you know ex uh, ex judges etc but uh, the in the bill the data protection authority will purely be a government body so the government will propose all the members of the data protection authority which gives the government significant control over the how data is governed in india uh, secondly is bill ke andar ek aur feature kiya hai ki the government can basically command any company to give up all of its data to the government now uh, the reason being uh, you know uh, being put forward is that this is because of uh, national security concerns also integration of the nation uh, we need this and uh, if we require any data then we should have the uh, legal framework to get the data from any uh, corporate that works in india uh, but at the same time uh, th- this goes against the essence of the bill which is data protection if if the data can be uh, you know freely taken by the state then this somehow uh, is an attack on liberty of of the people and uh, data is in fact a, a fundamental right and if we are talking about internet being a fundamental right i think the first step to that is owning your data so uh, i i mean uh, maybe internet is a fundamental right we are talking about it in another 20 years or 30 years but whenever that happens before that uh, the rights of data need to be secured uh, only then can we move on to the internet uh and then uh, data as we all of all of us know is the oil of the 21st century and uh, there has been a landmark uh, legislation already by the eu uh, which is uh, gdpr and uh, most of the companies have accepted that regulation so uh, it it would be uh, expedient on india's part as well if we take uh, at least in principle the approach which is followed by gdpr and not try to reinvent the wheel in india because uh, in india uh, I, i think uh, due to lack of awareness or lack of understanding of how things really operate uh, in the judiciary so so basically technical lack of technical expertise of the judiciary leads us to make uh, you know weird laws so uh, for example um you know uh, one of the laws that uh, in india you know did not sign the g20 osaka declaration because uh, there was somehow a feature there that it will allow free transfer of data between the borders and uh, the indian uh, bureaucrats uh, or the diplomats they got very itchy feet uh, on that and they did not sign the declaration whereas uh, you know transfer of data happens all the time even right now when we are doing this live on instagram this is probably being processed in some server in you know in some remote location uh, which which might probably not be india so uh, my point is that uh, the data it crosses borders all the time it gets processed inside india outside india in the space everywhere uh, so uh, these bills are just paper bills they don't really reflect what happens uh, on ground and uh, you know india has always had trouble with execution of the laws never with making the laws so we can make the best laws in the world but they are not always followed and uh, here again i think we're going to see that because there is an unrealistic approach being taken uh, the, some of these provisions in, in the laws uh, they cannot be achieved in the real world so uh, we uh, we need to make sure that whenever such legislations are formed 
they're only done by a technically competent authority and not some judge who who is an expert on you know adjudicating but not on data protection so uh, all of these uh, would be my points and uh, I, i definitely think that there is scope for uh, revising this policy and improving it because it can only improve uh, with feedback although it it has not been you know like a, a strength of the current government but i still hope at least when it comes to data uh, they take they take into account the feedback that they receive in the house okay so uh, like we should first discuss uh, is there a threat from data exploitation like does data pose any threat to, to national security or people's individual security and privacy in real world you being a data yeah, scientist so I, can you point out some real world threats like if you know any yeah yeah exactly i i mean the biggest threat is ai so uh, if if we have enough data and if we have enough coherent data then we will end up creating an ai and an ai is basically an authoritarian's dream so any authoritarian dictator that you can think about beat stalin beat mao uh, beat hitler they would have loved to have had uh, ai technology uh, in their control because uh, this is basically what you can use for uh, you know mass surveillance for every citizen you can survey using their data and uh, that is why ai is a technology that the west uh, you know doesn't really want to touch because if the technology develops too fast then countries like china and other you know dysfunctional uh, nation states in the world they will use this technology for for, for these bad purposes uh, against humanity so uh, so uh, that is like the big elephant in the room uh, which is ai like once we are able to develop a fully functional ai then uh, tasks like mass surveillance and you know knowing everything about every citizen become really easy and uh, in the current environment when our lives are completely taken over uh, by the smartphone and by the internet uh, we all of us have a lot of data online so if any if if you would like to know how much of your data is online so i think google offers that functionality that you can actually download all that data that belongs to you so when i did that it was something like 53 gigabytes of data and I, i could never imagine that i have generated 53 gigabytes of data which google has stored in its own servers and it actively uses it to suggest services to me so uh, there is a lot of data being recorded for everyone and once we have some algorithm working on it then it will become a very difficult situation very difficult to control and uh, you know mass surveillance is the eye of sauron which was imagined uh, in, in in the novels it will become very real Okay. But what you are saying is like sounds like that it will be a weapon in the hands of government only. Like the people who are trying to you know regulate data will be the one who will be exploiting it the most. If in worst case. Yeah. Yeah. The thing with data and with cyber security in general is that offense works a lot better than defense. like uh, no matter how much defense like how many forts or walls that you can build there will always be some way to break that so uh, cy- cyber security technology is is essentially an offensive technology and not a defensive technology so when we think about making a uh, defensive architecture for a uh, data protection or for you know cyber security it doesn't really work in the real world because technology changes every day and new vulnerabilities are created so uh, that is why i think uh, you, you know uh, this data protection is really important and we need to make sure that new technologies that we develop for example ai that they don't fall into the wrong hands because once they fall into the wrong hands then it can have very destructive 
you know a result for for all of us okay yeah panda you were saying something please contribute yeah i was also saying you know presently uh, it's not only about right to internet it's also about right to privacy that is a fundamental right uh, that we need to look on second thing is the government agencies that you have talked you know uh, i think so faster than the government agencies the private sector is emerging in the ai trends so you know uh, leave about the worst case scenario of a government having all the data uh, just think about the private sector having even some of the data with the uh, modified advanced forms that it has reached and second thing is uh, i i hope that this bill again again hoping this bill uh, does justice to what its provisions are but as vyas has mentioned that you know execution of law is an uh, another issue uh, because there was a report uh, i had read a year and a half back that the ministry of highways and transport have sold about 63 lakhs uh, data of uh, driving licenses to some private company uh, for some regulation that they needed to uh, frame or something like that something that is breach of data and the confidentiality of people so i think so this looks into uh, that aspect so just Okay. To conclude it, I would like to uh, just put up a point. Like what I feel about the whole data regime in India and the world is that, like we all, whatever we do online, it's getting stored somewhere, and uh, private companies are having a control over it, right? But what ideally should be that the whole data regime process should be decentralized. or it should be localized either it should be decentralized or it should be localized by localized i mean that every all the data processing that is being done should be in my phone or in my laptop which is related to me obviously there needs to be data storage enhancement uh, upgradation and uh, a lot of technologies development but ideally locally and by decentralized i mean that everyone's data should be freely available to everyone and it should be in an encrypted or anonymized form so that it cannot be used you know in an invasively attacking way right mm-hmm. you know without consent it cannot be used without consent as simple as that, uh, that yeah is- and 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 i think uh, one more uh, very important thing that you have mentioned there is ki uh, ye jo data which is being collected it is being used by these private companies for their own benefit and the user is actually not getting any benefit out of you know uh, the exploitation of data that is happening so uh, the, the, this you know brings us back to the question of the social contract so uh, social contract was this theory of rousseau uh, uh, before the french revolution where he says ki jo state hai it is a very powerful thing and uh, state ke paas itni power hai then there needs to be some rights that uh, citizens get ya fir some benefits that citizen get ki uh, we will allow the state to become powerful but we need something in exchange so that exchange part was known as the social contract so i i think uh, even in the data regime as well there needs to be a new social contract which is being established ki uh, if be it any private organization or be it the state when you're using the data then uh, the use of the data needs to be justified in such a way that it is actually benefiting are uh, the people who's uh, the uh, you know uh, who is the owner of that uh, particular uh, data source and Definitely. also uh, the second point that you brought up about uh, encrypted uh, data and it being available to everyone that is basically the utopian scenario where uh, you know that would be the perfect way where uh, like all of our identities are stored in an anonymized format and uh, that anonymous uh, profile contains all of our details 
so uh, you know everything that can be gathered from the data that is collected of me uh, all of that data is anonymized and stored in a uh, in, in a you know digital profile which can then be used by anyone without it hampering my privacy so uh, that would be the ideal case uh, we we don't yet have the digital infrastructure uh, to execute that or uh, really the political will or the commercial will uh, to 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 put something uh, like this in place but uh, that would definitely be the ideal solution uh, for you know managing data for all of humanity right mm-hmm. so I, i think we have like two or three minutes left so uh, we can't really discuss any new topics if you guys have i have a very small and light topic it's not discussion it's just fact but you know i would just like to mention it's about india and yeah. netherlands relation i have another topic that is india and russia that needs a whole some discussion so that will be next thing but india and netherlands relations basically so i would just point out the facts basic facts and that mm-hmm. that is it and few surprising facts though right so of the foundations on which they are based the relations are based as you know Uh, both countries are democratic rule of law freedom of speech expression uh, in india i see it going but still human rights etc etc right and historically uh, it is netherlands is the uh, one that was uh, the dutch english company you know dutch east india company and it was uh, after portugal they were the uh, second ones to come to india right uh, in the 17th century in kerala uh, large presence is presently seen even now and uh, dutch palace in cochin is the best example of their architecture and you know that was gifted to the king of kerala by the uh, portuguese uh, sorry by the dutch right now modern times now let's discuss about the modern times basically uh, there have been recent visits by uh, the uh, you know modi had visited in 2017 their pm had come in 2015 then their queen had come in 2019 so this is what relations are presently going on but what we can learn from netherlands so basically netherlands is a very small country with a, a native population of only 17 million people you know and uh, it has around 25% of uh, immigrants that are uh, or indian origin based 25000 are directly from india and uh, majority are from the suriname that are of indian origins you know and uh, there is a huge indian culture and uh, diaspora that is present in netherlands netherlands uh, and it will be fascinating because after uh, having read this Uh, basically whatever index i was seeing i was finding in netherlands so after france netherlands along with germany is the leader in eu uh, beat in terms of trade facilitation uh, beat in terms of wah basically it is water agriculture and health and uh, they are pioneers in water conservation and dam management so this is where india can learn from uh, the dutch people right uh, a very small nation and also the most interesting fact is netherlands is the third nation after singapore and mauritius to have a contribution uh, In, in the list of contributions in FDI, you know, so it is the third largest contributor in uh, to in FDI to India, uh, having a population of just 17 million. Going to the you know uh, the uh, diaspora that it has, the Indian roots that it has, and the culture that springs. So I think so India can learn a lot uh, from this. Uh, it can learn even from the technology perspective. It has a cutting edge technology, even you know uh, better than Germany at some points. And specifically the trade part, the trade facilitation and the competitiveness index, where it is ranked two and five. So that is this is what uh, basically we are talking about. And of course, magic mushrooms in Amsterdam. So that is something. Oh, also Amsterdam is the best city to live uh, in 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 the world. I mean, ease of living index number one. Right. So this this is what India Netherlands relation was all about. You can uh, chip in your points regarding 
Netherlands if you have any or something like that you know these are just facts uh, few interesting facts in fact that i had not thought a country of just 17 million population would have done so much yeah how they have third highest fdi in india i mean mauritius and singapore are well defined because they are like you know tax havens and round tripping and everything occurs but why netherlands I don't know. Um, I, I, I think uh, Dutch oil companies and which is in India were interested in way. So I, yeah, I think Shell that, is that, that point. That point. Right, right, right. That point. Yeah, I, uh, uh, the companies Exxon Mobil, Shell, uh, Philips, Unilever. These are all uh, Netherlands uh, companies. You know, Dutch companies. This is a very interesting one. In, 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 in fact, Netherlands has a very interesting capitalist history as well. Because when uh, joint stock companies when they originally started, they started in Netherlands. uh in the 15th and 16th century kyunki tab uh, to go on uh, you know voyages in the sea it was a very risky proposition so people used to buy stock in the company and then the company used to then send a vessel into the sea so usme uh, the dutch was the real uh, pioneers and that is why uh, the dutch people had colonies uh, far off like in south africa they had their colony in indonesia they had their colony so uh, the dutch people have been a seafaring people uh, trading uh, community and also uh you know one of the early pioneers of capitalism and uh, they also you know currently have some of the biggest oil companies in the world that is why uh, their fdi into countries like india is very also it is a tax haven it is a european tax haven okay. yeah oh, okay. but I, i thought switzerland took all the uh dirt No, okay. So, guys, we are already over our one-hour uh, period. Somehow, Instagram has not kicked us out yet. So, uh, let's close today's discussion. I think it was a fruitful discussion. We uh, discussed three full topics and one smaller topic. And uh, thank you so much uh, to Panda as always, and uh, to Krishna for showing up again. Uh, you're always welcome. And uh, thank you uh, to everyone who listened to us. Okay. Thank you, Vyas. Okay. You know. Thanks. All right. Bye bye. Bye.